You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show. And I'm your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we're coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon. And it's actually sunny. It's been raining most of the day. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a, a few things to talk about here on the Bose Nose Show today, but I just want to remind folks. It's always interesting when people call in and we talk about what you want to talk about here on the Bo's No Show, because I come to you live every Wednesday at 4 o'clock, schedule permitting, so that folks have an opportunity to call in and talk one-on-one with a, an elected official, and particularly if you're in Lane County, a county commissioner that's your, uh, one of your county, five county commissioners, to talk about anything you want to talk about, have questions about county government or general questions about government. Um, shoot, if you want to call and ask me about my poodles, we'll talk about poodles. It's 646-721-9887, and just press 1, and that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the Bose Nose Show. Again, that's 646-721-9887. Don't forget to press 1. It's kind of like that, that little toggle when you're in Zoom meetings. It raises a little hand on our board so we know we, we know that you want to be called on. So lots to talk about today. Um, and I, I'm going to talk about the association of ONC counties and ONC lands and a few things like that. And I've talked about it before a little bit, but it, it might take a little bit of a history lesson. So bear with me. Because particularly for those of you that are listening outside of the state of Oregon, the ONC lands are something that only are in the state of Oregon. So what you have to do is bring yourself back to the you know late 1800s, somewhere about 1880-something, you know, when they're, they're trying to extend railroads across the U.S. And the federal government, in, in its all its wisdom, <laughs> decided to um, incentivize building a railroad from the border of California to the border of Washington, north-south in Oregon, by giving, you know, a company, you know, whoever, you know, provided, you know, decided to bid on this, to give them every other section of land that was, you know, within, I think, a four-mile four width or four miles of the, the railroad right away. I can't remember what the exact description was. Um, but it gave them uh, quite a bit of land that they were supposed to 
sell to settlers and use the proceeds of those sales to build the railroad. So a company was formed, the Oregon and California Railroad Company, and they won the contract with the federal government to build this North-South Railroad and built one or two bridges. But for the most part, they were selling the land, pocketing the money, and um, really not building the railroad. And uh, when the federal government realized they were being scammed, the project took the land back from the, the railroad and gave them to the 18 counties in Oregon. At the time, it wasn't 18 because some of those counties, you know, split into smaller counties, but gave those lands to the counties in Oregon. And the counties were supposed to sell the land off and, and provide it to settlers. Well, back in that time period, some of the county governments were sort of corrupt. In fact, quite a few of them were. And the federal government realized a lot of the land that was being transferred was being, you know, given away at, at fire sale prices to friends and family of county commissioners. Uh, so they stopped that process and took the land back in federal ownership. And they were supposed to then make it available to settlers, but they held on to it. And eventually the counties realized they have all this land the federal government was, was owning, but they weren't getting any property tax dollars for it. So that there got to be a real push back and forth between the federal government and the 18 counties that were involved. And in the 20s, an organization was formed called the Association of ONC Counties, which the ONC stands for the Oregon California Railroad Lands Counties. And that was formed in the 20s, and they fought with the federal government. And finally, in the 30s, an act of Congress was passed in 1937 that set aside the ONC lands. They didn't give them back to the counties. They kept them in federal ownership, but it set them aside with the primary purpose for sustained yield timber harvest with the proceeds from that timber harvest to be divided between the federal government for managing the lands and the counties in lieu of the property taxes. An act of Congress from 1937. It didn't talk about multiple use doctrine. It didn't have anything to do with the Endangered Species Act because it far predates it. So those are those, these, these lands. It's over 2 million acres of forest land in Oregon. Along comes the spotted owl, because it was working really well. And the money that was coming into the counties was significant. In today's dollars, it was around $40 million a year into the Lane County General Fund. 40 to 60 million, depending on what the harvest was like in that year. So along comes the spotted owl and the environmentalists and everything else and, you know, you name it. And they basically shut down the harvest, which then generated um, replacement dollar plans. Uh, you know, first there was the owl guarantee and a few other uh, replacement. And then in 2000, 
the Secure Rural Schools and Community Self-Determination Act was passed that took up replacing the timber harvest dollars because also U.S. Forest Service harvest was shared with the counties. But that money goes specifically into the county's road fund and can only be used for, you know, roads and it can be used for sheriff patrol uh, only. And, and only and how much of that gets used for sheriff patrol, you know, is not, you know, you're kind of fighting a balance between starving your road fund to pay for sheriff patrol and all that. But that money at one point was a fairly decent amount of money and, and almost equaled what timber harvest used to be. But then they started a taper down with it and the taper down dropped it to 40% of the original SRS. And since that 40% level, they've been dropping at 5% every year and they've been only re-upping it one year at a time. And in fact, one year it didn't get re-upped and we went to actual harvest dollars that year, which was abysmal because we aren't harvesting the trees in these forests, which is a whole nother issue about them overgrowing and forest fires and other issues we're having in this state, but kind of the background. So this year, it, it, knowing that, that there's this organization that was formed in the 20s that has been so beneficial to these counties, years and years of great, you know, receipts coming into the counties to the point that when Measure 5 froze the permanent tax rates of government in the state of Oregon, a lot of these 18 counties that had really great revenue coming in from the ONC land had very low permanent tax rates. And we got frozen in that situation. And then the revenues have been taken away from us. Thus, we have currently three deputies at any one time during a 24-hour period patrolling the entirety of Lane County, plus a sergeant. Three deputies and a sergeant covering 4,000 square miles. Now, the Association of ONC Counties has been instrumental in lobbying for passage of secure rural schools and getting the ONC lands included in that, because that was really about U.S. Forest Service lands, which are, occur in multiple states in the United States, mostly in Western United States, but the secure rural schools benefited a lot of rural counties. But the ONC lands is specific to Oregon, and without the Association of ONC counties, we would have been left out of secure rural schools. Now, along comes a new board back in 2019, and it's a progressive board, and most of them were elected with backing from environmental organizations. Now, the environmental organizations don't really like the ONC Association, the Association of ONC Counties, because the Association of ONC Counties doesn't just want to get a handout from the federal government. They have been fighting for the federal government to honor the 1937 Act as written, which you can still protect spotted owls and get the sustained yield harvest. You can still even protect riparian zones and do sustained yield harvest. But a lot of these environmental groups want zero harvest. 
and their folks got elected and and with an excuse about open meetings, which was just an excuse because we pay dues into other organizations that don't have open meetings. Our progressive majority, and at that time it was Heather Buck, Joe Bernie, and Pete Sorensen, pulled us out of the association of ONC counties and stopped paying dues to them. Despite the fact that we'll still benefit from anything they, they managed to get, which is what gets us to our story about adding deputies yesterday. Now, mind you, these same people were also strongly supported by labor unions and particularly public employee unions. They complained mightily about the Supreme Court's Janus decision that allowed workers to benefit possibly from at union contracts yet not pay dues. But they're willing and, and even stated publicly that it didn't matter if we paid dues to AOCC, that we that the county would still benefit from anything they they fought for. So AOCC has been constantly fighting, you know, to get increased, you know, dollars from the government and and to try and change the resource management plan to get, you know, it's more important to get back to the actual sustained yield harvest because it's not just about the dollars that come to counties and the services we provide. It's about the family wage jobs that provides. It's about the active forest management that prevents massive forest fires. And we all know in, in a lot of these same counties about massive forest fires from that Labor Day fire and the east wind event. So fast forward to everybody trying to pass an infrastructure bill. And at the same time, the Association of ONC Counties and many other groups, and the Association of ONC Counties is part of the National Schools Coalition that's also fought for this. And the president of the Association of ONC Counties is also um, very active with the National Association of Counties and the Western Region and worked very hard in multiple ways to get something inserted into that infrastructure bill that really doesn't deal with infrastructure. But what it did was instead of re-upping SRS, you know, stuck it this this little piece of legislation into this bill that re-upped the Secure Rural Schools funding at the old 2017 levels, which, you know, remember I said we were doing this 5%, you know, less every year, back up, you know, four, four or five years of that 5%. So it's at levels that are 25% higher than, than this year would have been and guaranteed to be renewed for three years which is the first time we've had a more than one year renewal since 2010. Actually, I think that 2010 was when the five year re uh, renewal of it ended and we went to the one years thereafter. So it's been over 10 years of one year at a time. And we finally get the, the certainty of knowing that we have three straight years of funding at about 25% more money. So, Based on that good work of that association and many others, you know, success always has, yeah, 
has lots of people that want to lay claim to it versus failure, you know, is, is, is an orphan. Um, but based on that, Lane County, knowing that we were getting that additional money for the next three years, decided to, to you know, set aside financially enough of that in three-year increase to fund five years of eight new positions in our sheriff's department, in our police services division, which is where our patrol is. So we're adding five patrol deputies, a sergeant, and two detectives, so that we are going to go from three deputies on duty at any one time in Lane County to four deputies on duty at any one time. But if you think about that, that's a 33% increase in our patrol capacity. So we might be able to respond a little bit faster than the two and a half hours it was taking us to get those salt calls last December. <laughs> it's an average time response time, believe it or not. So, you know, huge thing for Lane County to be adding some capacity there. We haven't added capacity there for years. We had to make a huge cut at the end of the, the five-year taper down and the drop to that 40% level. And then the one-year re-ups that we couldn't count on. Um, so we're getting to add back those deputies. The two detective positions might actually allow us to start maybe, you know, doing more than sending people a, a um, file number so they could file for a prop, uh, claim against their, uh, their homeowner's insurance. Um, we might actually be able to investigate property crimes a bit more out in rural Lane County. So it's a big deal. But what I, I don't want to see is any of those folks that voted against us paying dues into this organization that fought so hard for us to get the money, claiming that they added to our public safety, that you know it was their efforts that got us those eight deputies. They pulled us out of the organization. And in the last two years, I have tried to renew our, our membership. So they pulled us out in 19 and in 20 and 21 they refused to rejoin three state years of not paying dues into that organization and not participating in it they have no claims to the success of adding this in fact you know if you want to thank somebody for the eight new folks in our sheriff's department call up tim freeman at douglas county Douglas County Commissioner Tim Freeman is the, the leader of the Association of ONC Counties and is just, you know, a, a great uh, lobbyist. You know, relationships he's developed with the folks on Capitol Hill from our delegation, you know, allowed him to, to control some language that actually um, – Getting deep into the weeds allows, you know, for counties that initially did not elect to take Title III funds to elect to take them now, which they kind of been locked out of, and it opened up what Title III funds are eligible to be used for for some things, because that's why a lot of counties didn't elect to take them, because they were so restricted. Brilliant work by Tim Freeman. 
And in addition to that, that you know, we didn't use all of the extra money in the sheriff's department. We are actually able to set aside and replenish some reserves out of our road fund that we used up during COVID and and for other projects, and set aside some money for future improvements to Territorial Highway in my district. Thank you, Tim Freeman. Thank you, Association of ONC Counties, for the work you've done for almost a century. I think they were founded in, in 1924, so you know, two years short of a century now. They've been working hard to get the federal government to own up to their responsibility for the two million plus acres that they own in Oregon that aren't benefiting the counties because they're not on our tax rolls. Aren't being well harvested either, which is making them you know, now become you know, fire issues and everything else. And they're not producing jobs. I mean, we all know that there's a lot of sawmills are closed in southern Oregon because there's lack of logs being produced from the federal lands. We're pretty fortunate here up in Lane County that there's enough private forest land to keep our mills running. Not so in Josephine and, and Jackson County. Most of the forest land there is federally owned and been shut down by environmentalists. So that was a very long history lesson, lesson in kind of how things are interacting between the federal government and the counties here in Oregon. Who's actually doing the work? The Association of ONC counties. And Lane County not paying their dues, which we were the second largest dues payer because we had the second largest amount of land benefiting from the work of an organization we've refused to pay dues to for three straight years. We should be paying our dues into that organization. We should be working hand in hand with them. And we should be looking at that sustained yield harvest, which could, yeah, these eight deputies, we could be hiring four times more than that if we were actually harvesting the land. The same yield harvest would bring far more revenue into Lane County than this re-up of the Secure Rural Schools Act. And at the same time, it would generate jobs. It would prevent massive forest fires by actively managing our forests, keeping the roads open and, and maintained. And instead of the federal government paying money to, to you know, fight fires and everything else of these lands and not generating any revenue, they would be getting revenue. It would help fight the federal deficit. So such a great benefit. So I'm going to pause before I jump to my next conversation. But I just wanted people to understand why we're adding those deputies and who's really responsible. So we are a call-in show. 
646-721-9887. Just press one if you want to get in on the show. That's Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire. Know that you want to get in on the show. Um, and, you know, because we do have people that call in just to listen. And, and they do that because sometimes you can't be in front of a computer. You know, because this is a podcast comes through most people's computers. We also Facebook Live this, and you can find us in a bazillion ways now. We get rebroadcast by all sorts of of, uh, streaming services, um, you know, because they're always looking for content, and and we're free. I'll remind you of that. You know, we don't take any money. There's no commercials during this. It's it's an hour straight of your opportunity to hear, you know, some in-depth background on on something like the ONC lands and why we're adding deputies in Lane County to you know all sorts of issues and your opportunity to call in and ask a question to a, an elected official one-on-one. How many opportunities do you get that? When's the last time you were able to call a senator or a state representative or even a city councilor and talk to them? While they're live on the air and you know it's, you know, this lives forever because it's the internet, it's a podcast, this, you call in and talk to me, that conversation will live forever on the internet. So you know I have to be pretty honest and straightforward. I can't lie to you. What an opportunity for folks to call in. Switching directions, though, there's other stuff to talk about. And I I can't go past today without talking a little bit about COVID, mask mandates, and all that good stuff. And I just have to say one of the things I'm going to do at the end of the show is I'm going to share a graph onto um, my Facebook page and the KRBN Internet News Talk Radio Facebook page. I finally got a trending graph for hospitalizations and deaths instead of all only case counts that's actually for the basically the entire pandemic and you can see the trends and one of the things you see is after the delta surge the omicron surge cases and hospitalizations are disconnecting from each other i mean there's still you know an up in the hospitalizations that comes with the surge, but as far as the percentage of hospitalizations compared to number of cases, there's no comparison to the rest of the pandemic. Just like in other times, the hospitalizations are lagging the surge of cases and deaths will probably too, because that's just the way things work. They're, they're, they lag. Um, but uh, we are starting to see the end of the Omicron surge. It's in statewide numbers and our county numbers. And one of the things, you know, we're seeing is, you know, it hasn't been as severe. Now there's several reasons for that. One is the, the, the variant's not as severe. Two, even you know, one of the things we're seeing is Omicron defeats um, the the vaccine pretty well, unless you're fully vaccinated and boosted, there's really, you know, you know, you're going to, you have a good chance of still getting Omicron. But one of the things we are seeing is there's still a significant difference in severity of disease, vaccinated, unvaccinated. 
the vaccinated are not being hospitalized at the same rate in the same, you know, and, and doing this by demographics, I'm, you know, I'm not going to compare 85-year-old unvaccinated people with 30-year-old vaccinated. I'm comparing 85 vaccinated people and 85-year-old unvaccinated people. If you're unvaccinated, you have a much higher chance of being hospitalized and a much higher chance of death. It's just statistically there. Now, the vaccination may not stop you from getting COVID. It may not stop you from spreading COVID, but it is definitively going to lessen the severity of the case you have, you know, by the statistics. So I'm not going to argue that. But one of the things we're seeing with this whole COVID Omicron thing is we're understanding that now that the, the virus keeps mutating and developing new variants and in trying to live, it's becoming less severe because, you know, the more severe a virus is, it, you know, if it kills off its host, it doesn't, it's not successful. <laughs> so it's becoming less severe, but it's becoming more contagious. And it is, you know, been well documented from the CDC, uh, Oregon Health Authorities confirm this. Omicron is so contagious, masking is not an effective strategy, particularly cloth mask and, you know, gaiters and non-highly um, rated um, masks. You've got to be wearing a well-fitted KN95 or M95 mask, really, to prevent spreading or getting Omicron. Now, mind you, even if you have those, if they're not fitted right, they're not going to, you know, I know I have a problem with even the KN95s because, you know, I have this certain feature on my face that's a little bit larger than most people's, and they don't fit me well. And, you know, even wearing the, a KN95 and trying to get the, the nose bands pressed down as hard as I can, I still fog my glasses, which means if I can fog my glasses from my breath getting out from underneath the mask like that, I can infect somebody with Omicron or get be infected. We now know that Omicron can get past most masks. We know that Omicron's less severe. So, bringing the state of Oregon proposes a permanent mask mandate and vaccine mandate for school employees, mask mandate for schools, children, and employees in the midst of all this. And they take two days of public input. In a, in, public, in a virtual hearing format. Not a single person said, yes, we want a permanent rule. All the testimony for two straight days was no. No need for a permanent rule. But, you know, the, gover the governor and OHA want a permanent rule because, you know, these temporary rules, they have to go through renewing them every six months. And, you know, that's a lot of work. And it, it, it's not really permanent. It just doesn't have an expiration date. 
That was their explanation. And then they're asked, well, what are the metrics for, you know, removing it? You know, if if it's going to be permanent and you just don't want to have to renew it every six months, when are you going to drop it? You know, what what's the metric for dropping? Oh, we don't. We'll know it when we see it. Is kind of the answer we got. There's no metrics. Now I went through this last time. I'm going to go through it again. Permanent rule is about masking young children in our schools for six hours a day, most of them, because they've got to wear their mask on the bus. That's a federal requirement because that's considered public transit. So they've got a mask up on the bus, which state has no control over that. So they put their mask on, on at the bus stop, ride in the school, get out of school, have to keep the mask on the entire day, except for when they're eating, and wear the mask home on the bus when they finally get to take it off. Mind you, this is for kids five years old in first grade, four years old in kindergarten, six and second grade, maybe seven. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of those kids probably aren't being very hygienic with their masks. So <clears throat> I want to run through four things for you, and then I want to ask you to think about should we have a permanent mask mandate for school kids, particularly elementary age kids and under? Because mind you, a lot of these schools also have pre-K programs in their schools. And the mask mandate starts at three, age three. So here's four pieces of factual information I can back up with citing studies or citing people have actually said this out loud from the CDC and OHA. One, masking with anything other than a highly rated KN95 or M95 mask does not stop the spread of the Omicron variant ineffective. Two, children in particular have very low disease severity when it comes to COVID in the first place and the Omicron variants even less severe. Hospitalizations for COVID for children are rare. Deaths are almost non-existent. Unless you have some pre-existing condition, and parents should know that about their children, it is really extremely rare, and, and the threat, the public health threat of Omicron to children is very small. Three, children do not or are not able to practice good hygiene with masks. You have the kids sucking on their masks. You have kids eating, you know, eating snacks and stuff like that and then chewing on their mask or, you know, trading masks with their with their friends because the, you know they think the other guy's mask is cool and wearing it for a little while, you name it. I would challenge some university study to go into an elementary school 
pull the mask off of, of, you know, young, you know, kindergarten, first grade, second, third grade, even all the way up into fifth grade kids. Smear them and culture them at lunch hour, you know, while the kids are eating, you know, so that and and see what those those cultures develop. I guarantee you it's it would scare most people to death. And then think about the fact those kids are going to put those masks back on for the last half of the day and the bus ride home. Four, it has been studied and and documented that we are doing psychological, emotional damage to children by masking them. The fear we're instilling in them, the anxieties, the lack of full emotional and socialization by not being able to see the full facial expression during conversations, we are doing emotional damage to our children with masks. Why are we doing a permanent mask mandate for young children? So I mentioned we're a call-in show, and you can jump in anytime. I have Jeff on the line, and he wants to talk about masks, as we were just discussing it. Jeff, what's on your mind? Well, first, the weather report always. It's uh, calm, freezing cold, and uh, overcast, but... Once again, it's beautiful here in Florence on the coast. Um, Good news. Yeah, good news. Um, So we had a a school board meeting, and uh, I believe like 75 parents or concerned citizens showed up to this school board meeting, and boy, they let it know what they felt about masks. And I think all but like three people had a different view. And, um, and so after that discussion was done, uh, one of our brand-new uh, parents that got on the school board really uh, laid into it the ridiculousness of this, and he asked that they vote to let the kids that are um, practicing and participating in sports not have to wear masks. And one of the other members, thinking that they would just knock this down and kill it, said, yeah, I'll second that. They put it up for a vote, at which the, the chairman really was trying to, to tell them, hey, you guys don't have to do this. You can always table this. They voted, and with all those concerned uh, persons there in the room, it was passed unanimously except for one person. So the kids don't have to wear those GD masks while participating and uh, practicing for sports. Yeah, I mean, the, the health risk of co- coronavirus for young adults in good shape, and generally kids that are participating in sports are in pretty good shape, is so small. Um, and, you know, we've seen, you know, we've had cases of kids passing out from CO2 buildup wearing those damn masks. And I mentioned on the show here, I got my biannual physical in, in December, and my blood work came out great. You know, I was in the normal range for my blood sugar, you know, triglycerides, HDL, LDL, all the good stuff you're supposed to worry about. One thing was out of, out of the ordinary and out of range. I had a high CO2 
level in my blood. And I, I'm scratching my head. What the heck? It wasn't, you know, too elevated, just a little bit out of the normal range. And I, and I realized I had been wearing a mask for a couple hours before they drew blood. And, mm-hmm. and you're asking, asking athletes to wear a mask while they're actually exerting themselves? Oh, my gosh. Like I said, you know, they all talk about first do no harm. You know, and, and a lot of these people that are, you know, were, were, were pushing hard for the, all the mandates and everything else was, you know, you know don't harm people. You know, you, you know, if you're not wearing a mask, you're murdering people type stuff. You remember that admin, admonition early on in the pandemic, which when we didn't understand the virus and stuff might have been a reasonable thing to say. Uh, although we're, you know, even then there were doubts about the effectiveness of masks. But now that we understand, now that the Omicron variant is the dominant variant that defeats most masks, it doesn't make sense to have kids wearing masks. Well, that's really great news to hear from the Sayusla School District down there in Florence, Jeff. And uh, any other any other news from Florence you want to share? Oh, Gee whiz, other than the tide's going out right now, and there's a ton of seagulls making the docks white. Ah, sounds great. All right, yeah. well, yeah, making wow. the docks white. Yeah. We don't want to talk about how. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, other than that, all's, all's pretty good here. Uh, I, I can't think of anything else. Um, yeah, I, I wonder, I, I think that the, the governor of Oregon – is just going to make a, the mandate for health care uh, facilities and for schools. But I wonder if private businesses, if they make their employees wear these things, that if they find that, that there's harm that they're causing, I, I wonder if a lawsuit could be brought that the, the business, now not being mandated but on their own, is actually causing harm if somebody comes down with some illness because of the CO2 bacteria levels and so on and so forth. Yeah, it's it's a it's a balancing point businesses are going to have to consider. I mean, there are you know businesses where the wearing of mask is mandated, and it's and the and the reason why is there's a risk involved. You look at dentistry, you look at, you know, surgeons and stuff like that. They, they wear a mask, and there's a reason why, <laughs> you know, because the, the, the risk involved in the CO2 buildup and the, the hygiene issues are, are, you know, far less than the risk of spreading disease and contamination, of, you know, of an open surgical field. Um, you know, those are things, you, you know, that, that justify that if you're if you're a bookshop <laughs> and your employees you know the only risk is about transmitting a disease that's now become less severe and that 70% of our population's been fully vaccinated for you kind of got to wonder if there isn't some you know you know how many businesses are going to be willing to continue down that road of mandating their employees wear a protective device that's no longer, that may actually, the risk they're causing to the employees is worse than the risk to their customers. But that's, you know, that's going to be an individual decision for each business owner. I don't know if you can comment on this. um, I know you're an engineer. 
So you've probably seen that, yeah. that YouTube video with that electrician. He takes his uh, air quality monitor, and he, he puts the, the feed tube into his mask, and it comes out with a danger reading. Any comment on that? I haven't seen the video, um, and it depends on – I don't know what the air quality monitor was monitoring for because, um, you know, some of them are monitoring for um, – particulate matter, some of them are monitoring for various chemicals, some are monitoring for um, CO2 or carbon monoxide. So not having seen what the monitor was and video, I, I, I can't really comment on that. <laughs> if, if nothing yeah, else, no, the, no, I mean, the might be causing I, the, the reading. Yeah, it's just interesting. Maybe after you see it, because it's pretty popular on, on the, the – and I think these monitors – they only do like four different gases that if you're an electrician, you're going into a room, it's like CO2 levels and um, uh, you know, like these really four basic things that they're really concerned about. Anyways, yeah, it'd be yeah. fun uh, if you could just maybe play that and uh, and then comment on it. That'd be kind of fun. Yeah, well, maybe I'll get a chance to take a look at it. Well, thank you, as always, for checking in from Florence with the weather report and uh, keeping things lively here and demonstrating to everybody else out there that all you have to do is call 646-721-9887, and uh, you can get in on the Bose Nose Show and take the conversation whatever direction you want. And I just want to say kudos to uh, the Sayusaw School District Board for having some common sense. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the legislators that are um, – meeting right now in our quote short session and get a little bit off the topic of covid and um you know federal timberlands and, and a few other things and just kind of mention some of the insanity that's that's being proposed and and it's and some of this is coming back from more than the second time uh, you know, there's one little bill that keeps sneaking its way in on the behest of one particular fire district that is going to try and change state law to make it make fire districts able to force the annexation of people outside of fire districts against their will. It's a horrible bill, but it's all about fire districts that are greedy for uh, taxable assessed value, and, um, you know, sometimes they have to respond outside their districts. The thing is, is they don't have to put out the fire, and it was clearly demonstrated here in Lane County recently when there was a fire outside of fire district territories, and the local fire district responded only enough to make sure things were safe, and they backed away and let the house burn because that person could have voluntarily annexed themselves into a district and been paying taxes and then would have had that fire fought. Or they could have agreed to contract with the fire district, or they could have agreed to pay the cost of fighting the fire on the spot. You know, but, you know, that's the way it's supposed to work. But this little bill they keep sneaking in is, is you know, at the behest of one particular fire district and it will affect all over. And some of you folks may be way out in rural areas that you're out there because, you know, you realize you're on your own if you have a house fire. 
And you realize even if you were in a fire district, it might take them so long to respond, they really won't be fighting the house fire. They'll just be trying to keep, you know, the neighbors and the forest from going up. Uh, but it's your choice. And you can always voluntarily annex into a district. But this would give districts the power to forcibly annex people into them, make them pay additional taxes, and, and really should be just, shouldn't be, I don't know who keeps reintroducing it. I'll have to look that up, but it's one of those bad bills that's like like a bad penny. It just keeps turning up. And uh, it's probably the third or fourth session I've seen that bill in, in different formats turn up again. And, you know, the short session was sold to the Oregon public as it was going to be for adjusting budgets and maybe making small tweaks to, to previous, you know, statutes and bills, be, you know, because there was mistakes in how they were written or something like that. They're bringing in bills or bringing back bills from long sessions that they couldn't get through or that failed to get support. Like Senate Bill 1510. Now, this bill is kind of one of these omnibus bills that was proposed after, you know, the, the George Floyd and, and all the, the, you know, all cops are bastards crap and defund the police. And it has things in it like it bans law enforcement officers for doing a traffic stop based on a non-working taillight or headlight that's out. Because supposedly somehow or another that's racist. I, I'm not quite sure how, particularly in or Oregon where, you know, most of the time you notice whether somebody's taillight's out is at night, in the wintertime when it's raining, and the way most cars have tinted windows nowadays. I don't know how you could, at night could tell what race the driver is, but somehow or another, that's in that bill. Also in that bill is a prohibition on parole officers being able to come to the place of employment of a parolee, which they usually only do when the parolee is not checking in <laughs> and they're looking for them. And it's one of the places, you know, quite often those guys want to keep their, their cash coming, but they stop coming to their parole appointments probably because they can't pass their P-test or some other reason. But still, now, you know, some reason that was some, there's some racist aspect to that too. Now that's going to be, you know, banned under this bill. And Probably the thing that bothers me the most about this bill is it messes with something called the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, which was started initially back in 2013 to prevent Oregon from having to build new prisons because we were running out of prison beds in this state. And the cost of building the new uh, men's prison and females prison that was going to be needed in the next 10 years was going to cost the state $600 million. So what they devised was they were going to start this program that would incentivize counties to not send people to prison 
and they were supposed to invest $60 million a year into this program because if we kept under the numbers, it was going to save the state $600 million over that 10 years. They've never funded it at the full $60 million. In the $30 million range is where they've been funding this, this program, 30 to $40 million. <clears throat> And it's been really used well by a lot of counties. The prison bed utilization has dropped. They're projecting not having to build these, these prisons. In fact, it's dropped well below that, partly because of Measure 110 and, and a couple other changes in sentencing law. Um, but that money is being utilized by counties to do things that divert people from the prison process. Drug courts, veterans courts, mental health courts that, you know, take people that are, that are accused of a felony and are probably going to be found guilty, and they're able to, you know, put off the adjudication of that felony to divert them into treatment programs. And upon successful completion and not recidivating, the felony charge goes away as never having been adjudicated. It doesn't even show up on the record anymore. And they don't end up in prison. And, and the, the, the graduation rate for these kind of treatment courts and the life change that we make in these people is incredible, incredibly successful programs. So as part of the Senate Bill 1510, they're going to take $10 million and hand it directly to a nonprofit to do a now a justice reinvestment thing, but it's about racial justice reinvestment. So they're underfunding the original program, taking $10 million that they could have been at least getting closer to fully funding that original program kind of renaming it and handing it to a nonprofit to do some kind of grant program to social justice um, uh, organizations to do social justice work uh, to try and prevent the disproportionate contact or disproportionate, you know, uh, adjudication in the criminal justice system for various uh, demographics. It's a no-bid contract for $10 million to a nonprofit. I wish I had that gig. They're going to be, I mean, they're not getting the $10 million so much. They're going to get administrative costs for administrating the program, which I can imagine is going to be a hefty amount of the $10 million. And they're going to be making decisions to distribute money outside of the process that was set up for the Justice Reinvestment Initiative which has a committee that includes not only, you know, appointed, you know, folks appointed by the governor, but it includes a couple legislators on it. It includes myself representing counties on this, this committee, it includes a DA representative, it includes somebody from community corrections. It also has been expanded to include a couple um folks that are that are from the the DEI uh, sort of organizations that that are going to be funded from this ten million dollars and they've changed the requirements to where as part of the applications for these these grants 
counties have to show they're doing something about their being, you know, their cultural sensitivity, trying to work on disproportionate con- contact and working on the issues of race in their criminal justice systems. So it's already built into the system, yet they're going to take another $10 million of state general fund and just hand it to a nonprofit outside of that whole grant review system. Poor oversight, no bids. Just, it, it really makes you, you know, scratch your head. And this is being done in the short session. Your legislators at work. But, you know, can't stop people for a taillight that's out. That's now going to be verboten. I guess somehow or another that's racist. Um, <laughs> oh, my. When does it all end? You know, where, where, where is this headed? This divisiveness that this our society is and, and certain people are pushing. What happened to the 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 goals of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Where people are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. So we're about out of time with the Bose Nose Show. You know, we we just have a couple minutes left. I'll still take a call if you want to call, but um, I think I'm going to wrap it up because I kind of in a good stopping point. I don't want to jump beyond that that thought from Dr. King. It's something we could all live by. We could also all live by Dr. King's nonviolent protest civil disobedience and nonviolence that he practiced. Oh my gosh, that would go a long way. So I want to thank everybody for listening to the Bose Nose Show. We'll be back next week with another edition of the Bose Nose Show coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.